So actually, you 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 bring up Florida. Um, the movement seems to be seems to have gained a lot of steam down in Florida. Is that just because the state government down there kind of gives you guys room to breathe, or is it just you know the kind of personalities that Florida attracts? I and mean, what do you attribute that to? Well, it's, it's interesting, yeah, because as far as the physician network goes, if you look at the geographic distribution of the COVID uh, initial group of COVID uh, warriors, as I guess you can call us or them, um, they were all over the country. And I was a lone guy out of Florida, uh, other than Ben Marble, who's up in the panhandle, um, who was starting his own thing for a while. Um, we did have a group in Florida that at the same time, Yes, I mean, I think it was conducive to us getting together and saying, okay, we're going to go to Tallahassee and we're going to fight for medical freedom. And uh, so there were several physicians who were concerned about that. But I think ultimately we had that first summit um, in Florida at here in Ocala um, about a year and a half ago now. And um, that was actually the first Ocala summit in the country. Um, other than the one we had in, in Puerto Rico, which was not really a it was a smaller group of people. Mm -hmm. So I think what, that kind of put Florida on the map as a place to um, a place where uh, the the uh, narrative that the government was providing about COVID was being challenged directly by you know hundreds and certainly even thousands of people. And then again, yes, we had a governor who. Uh, I mean, shocked the heck out of me. And I didn't know me, never met him before personally, but I got a phone call sometime around April of 2020, um, maybe May. And it says the governor's on the phone, would like to visit with you. And um, he had called me kind of out of the blue. I think it was after I'd released a video called Taking the Mask Off of COVID-19. And in that video, I had addressed, uh, among other things, the fact that the masks and many other measures were not only useless, but dangerous. But um, so he did. He just got on the phone. He wanted to get my opinion before he removed the mask mandates in Florida as a physician. So I have to, there's no way you can't give Governor DeSantis credit uh, for, you know, if we'd had a different governor and a different policy in place. Um, if we physicians didn't if, if he hadn't had our back as doctors. And then, of course, he added to that. He brings in Dr. Latipo, Joe Latipo, who really has our back. You know, if I'm practicing like Brian Tyson in California or a friend of mine in Washington State or when or when um, uh, Pierre Corey was being persecuted in Wisconsin, along with Paul Marek and, um, you know, everybody was getting kind of stuff thrown at them at the same time. But here in Florida, in spite of the fact that I was being persecuted seriously by the hospitals and by the medical board, there were people at various levels that had my back and that. Uh, certainly helped us to keep going in Florida for medical freedom. I mean, it's it's so refreshing to hear about elected officials who actually listen to people on the ground, doctors who are on the on the front lines, as it were. Um, so, so you mentioned the beginning of COVID. Take us back to that time. When did you first make the connection between effective treatment and ivermectin? Well. You know, I think the first time was with hydroxychloroquine, and that was because that was sufficient for the alpha variant. And my first exposure to that came at almost simultaneously from a patient of mine who is a registered nurse who was uh, doing her own reading, as many people did. She would start, she took care of the first 
COVID victim in our county here, Marion County. She was on the shift with him for 12 hours and she got sick within 24 hours. And she came to me and said, I'd like to get hydroxychloroquine. Um, this is also around the same time that President Trump was getting word out about hydroxychloroquine because of advisors who were with him in the White House who were really solid people like Dr. Steve Hatfield and, and Dr. Atlas and um, several others who are around, but most of whom were kicked out, you know, right. by, because of the influence of Fauci but, um, right. and Janet Woodcock. So all that's going on. And then, para, and then almost paradoxically, the chief medical officer at one of the hospitals that ended up refusing these treatments, but he's a really, he's actually a really nice guy. He just happens to work for the enemy. In this, in this case, he was. He said, uh, John, I got this amazing article you might want to read about early treatment of COVID with derivatives of quinine. And it was out of China. It was all Chinese researchers. And so I, I started reading about that. And uh, of course, I'd had some familiarity with quinine over the years. And of course, the derivative of quinine we're referring to is hydroxychloroquine. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, or Plaquenil, which I've used for years with, for collagen vascular diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. So, yeah, I mean, okay, this is cool. And then um, Alpha Variant came and went, and there was... Then I got invited to join this group of doctors. Peter McCullough had heard about me as well at this time and invited me to join a group of doctors who were all of the folks you know of. And that's when the ivermectin really was made aware. Uh, its existence was made aware to me, as, at least for COVID. I had used it before for, for parasitic infections, but not for COVID. Can it be used? This is a question that I have because I, I mean, I kind of know the answer and um, I've spoken to many people about it, but tell us a little bit about the use of ivermectin as a prophylactic for COVID. In other words, taking it to kind of prevent you from, from getting infected. How effective is that? Well, here's what the deal is. The ivermectin prophylaxis, again, I always have to say hydroxychloroquine prophylaxis, both very effective um, with the alpha variant you know, once, twice a week, um, we had dosing based on, uh, for Plaquenil, it was a standard dose, 200 milligrams daily. Um, but for pla for the ivermectin, it was weight-based, extremely effective when uh, in the studies where it was given prophylactically, such as in India, in the, in the largest, one of the largest provinces in India, where they just handed it out door-to-door -door in communities where COVID was rampant, um, uh, Uttar Pradesh, India. So you, you've seen the statistics on the incredible low incidence of mor morbidity and mortality from COVID in that province as compared to other provinces, which had terrifically bad outcomes and did not, did not provide ivermectin. That was actually a community initiative, the health department essentially in India, handing out doses of ivermectin, which was ubiquitous in India as it is in Africa, because it's used to prevent river blindness uh, in a prophylactic way. I mean, the World Health Organization, the same one that condemns ivermectin, was behind the campaigns or supported the campaigns for decades to disseminate ivermectin to the peoples of Africa to prevent this uh, parasitic infection that causes river called river blindness. But that said, um, let's not get obsessed with the fact that it's anti-parasitic. I have a, a video that I made that's, that was taken down, but it's back on my website. But one of the first, the biggest eye-openers about ivermectin didn't come to my attention until well after the Delta variant. It was actually about, oh, maybe six months ago now when I was watching a talk or reading a paper, I forget which, and someone referred to ivermectin as a macrolide. And of course, I know what a macrolide is. A macrolide, the class 
of macrolides includes erythromycin, clarithromycin, azithromycin. Azithromycin is the ZPAC. Okay. So they basically said ivermectin is a macrolide. And I had, I I said, oh, wait a second. All of these meetings we've been having with all these doctors who are so smart, including you, I'll name, you can name them. And no one in any of these meetings, even in the public had ever said, at least to my recollection, that ivermectin is a, a macrolide. All you had to say to get people to realize how valuable this drug is, is that it's derived from the same plant that produced streptomyces, which was a miracle drug in the 1950s and 60s to treat tuberculosis, which is not a parasite. It's an atypical bacterium. It's called a mycobacterium, a typical bacterial organism, which was killed with streptomyces. Okay, streptomyces is a fungal, it's a plant, essentially. And then they were able to derive streptomycin from this plant. So from the streptomyces, mycies is fungal, that myco term, M-I-C-O. It means something fungal, again, not parasitic. And later on, after streptomycin, they produced erythromycin from the same chemical compound that was isolated. And we all know or should know about erythromycin and certainly about the ZPAC, how that has. And so when Zithromyc, when the ZPAC came out, and I was involved with the early studies with that when I was in the Army in the early 90s, we started using it for outbreaks of bronchitis in barracks dwellers in the, in the military. And at that time, they would say, oh, don't give antibiotics for a viral infection. To this day, the American Family Physician, I, still, I can't wait to write and have time to write a rebuttal to this. Or, to this day, the American Family Physician magazine is telling every family doctor in America, do not prescribe antibiotics for viral infections, i.e. COVID. Right. But we've been prescribing Z-Packs for atypical bacterial and slash viral infections for decades. Because we knew we saw early on it had incredible anti-inflammatory properties, incredible anti-inflammatory. And who knew what other properties it might have? Well, it just so happens that ivermectin had the same anti-inflammatory properties, preventing the cytokine storm and furthermore, preventing the viral replication uptake with these weaponized coronaviruses. So when you asked about preventive use of ivermectin, it's doing multiple things. I'm sure if you've seen, I can't even talk in one in one hour about all the mechanisms of actions i can tell you of ivermectin and i have it in my backyard there's a wonderful review article called the mechanism of action of ivermectin against coronavirus it was published in the journal of antibiotics by japanese physicians about a year ago it's a solid peer-reviewed journal and it's wonderfully laid out all the mechanisms and then you ask yourself why why did medical establishment say no divermectin so this this to me is the million dollar question why is it that the medical establishment in this country continues to intimidate and in some cases even criminalize doctors who administer treatments that work i mean it it, it would be one thing doctor if you and i were talking in march of 2020 this is march of 23 now and we know, I mean, how many patients have you treated with ivermectin? Oh, my gosh. Well, with the last count we actually made, it was over 3,000. And that was at the end of Delta variant. So with Omicron, we ended up having a boatload more, not as many, but it's in the thousands. I, I, I mean, when I have time, I'll sit down and we'll correlate it all. And maybe a half dozen fatalities. And in every one of those cases, but one that I can think of, there were things happening in the hospitals that were beyond my control. All right. 
So, yeah, I, and I've always made a point of saying with the, when the Delta variant came out, you know, there were going to be some fatalities because every year with influenza and every year with any viral, but, you know, you're the right person, you're going to end up with some called adult respiratory distress syndrome leading to hosp- uh, hospitalization and ventilation and perhaps death. But the numbers of deaths from COVID that could have been prevented when you see I mean, the best examples I can give you, Mike, is me walking into the home of someone who's literally hypoxic that weighs 350 pounds, that is on the highest amount of oxygen you can put a person on in the home, and she is adamant, adamant that she's not going to go to the hospital because she knew what was happening. And so I'm there giving her the highest doses because of her weight of ivermectin that you can give to somebody, along with the rest of our cocktail that was well outlined by Dr. Peter McCullough. Uh, early on in his uh, Journal of Cardiovascular Research. And then we went on, we, we, we just would call each other incessantly. I'd be on the phone with Pierre Corey and Richard Urso and Peter McCullough primarily at that time because there were only a few of us that were actually doing the clinical work with patients. There's a lot of other doctors out there who are experts. But to see people day in and day out, and again, in my case, Mike, to see them in the office here or in Kissimmee, you know, we never shut the doors of our office one day during COVID, not one day did we shut the doors. And we were the only practice at one point in time that was open. Um, and uh, and then, of course, house calls, people would call me ministers that were home sick with their wives. Um, you know, they it, it's it, it, and then, of course, the fact that I had privileges to hospitals and nursing homes. So I would be called and I'd be going to see people that weren't even my established patients, just consult on them in the in these settings. So it was a lot of work. I I can't, it's getting harder, if not downright impossible to ascribe this behavior to innocent reasons. I mean, what you're describing, the, the records that you have and the um, number of real life cases that you have treated, this should not be controversial any longer, and yet it still is. And I'm I'm trying to figure out why that could possibly be. Yeah, it should be, you know, if you look at the three-minute episode that NBC News in Orlando did uh, initially, and I got some attention for that, uh, a wonderful reporter. She, still, she has her job still, but she was almost fired for coming to my office in Kissimmee. And that was the report that you can find easily online, um, Physician Who Treats Thousands. The other person she interviewed for that was Neil Dunn, who's a congressman, urologist, physician, right down the block here on the other side of uh, town. He's a congressman. While he was in D.C., he treated hundreds of people in the Capitol building with ivermectin and or hydroxychloroquine. And yet and it was during that entire time that you couldn't talk about that in public. And yet he had people from both sides of the aisle calling him. I'm sick. And this is really the same. My experience. My my experience. I'd have doctors. And I've said this on a few other podcasts, calling me, emergency room physicians, pathologists, orthopedic surgeons, hospitalists, hospitalists who are taking care of people in the hospital, but not allowed to give them ivermectin. And they're calling me, what can I give my mom? What can I give my dad? What can I give myself? What can I do? You know, because I'm sick. And they alter every single person. This is the craziest thing about this, Mike. Every single person in those capacities that I treated never they didn't get hospitalized they didn't they got better they got over it 24 48 hours and yet they're going to work each day and so it's kind of a there was a blindness that is that has infiltrated the medical profession and of course you, you know you can be a stark contrast you can say it's good and evil and i think it's a blunting of our conscience as a collective group of physicians and nurses that took place 
and has been taking place in medicine for decades. I mean, I've been talking about this stuff. That's why I wrote this book, The Hidden Truth, Deception of Women's Healthcare. And one of the things I wrote in there, I said, these obstetricians who've been doing this stuff are friends of mine. They're friends of mine, but they still turn around and do things that are harmful to women and babies, for that matter, unborn babies anyway. So I'm kind of like, and even after they're born, there's so many things happening in the world of medicine where people have just checked out that initial initial um, words of wisdom from Hippocrates, first do no harm. Do no harm. First do no harm. You know, I was going to say an admonition. I, I mean, I was trying to think of the right word. It's like everything. Primum non nocere is like it should be in, imprinted on everyone's forehead, in their brains, and every soul of their, their being, every fiber of their being, I should say as a physician, and yet there is no more Hippocratic oath in medicine. There is no first do no harm. There is nothing even remotely resembling first do no harm in medicine. You know, I I wish, and I will stipulate right off the bat that it's easy for me to say, although, you know, in doing this kind of work, I've, I've had to make sacrifices as well, but I, I wish doctors would have shown a little more courage over the last couple of years in doing what they knew in their heart, as you just described, was right. But I lay the real blame at bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., and maybe elsewhere in hospital buildings all over the country that incentivized um, hospital, paid hospitals that said, hey, look, we're going to pay you guys for every positive COVID test you produce. We're going to pay you guys for every patient that winds up on a ventilator. Who, who, as to the best of your knowledge, who are these people? And how do we shine a light on them? Because I think, you know, they kind of enjoy um, a free ride here whenever we talk about these things because they're behind the curtain and no one really knows who they are or what they do. But they're the ones who set the framework for a lot of this stuff. No, you know, something about this podcast, we're saying some things I have not said before. So I hope people listen. This is a byproduct of the fact that when insurance companies started taking over healthcare recently and they created something called value-based medicine, this, this, I have articles on this from 20 years ago. And so what they wanted, if they're going to pay the hospitals to take care of a patient, the hospital has to prove up front that that patient is sick enough to be paid the amount of money that they want to charge the insurance company or the federal government in the case of Medicare. So the more diseases you can come up and believe me as a doctor taking care of patients in the hospital i get queries day in and day out from people the, the number crunchers saying dr Latell, this patient really has um, you know uh, metabolic uh, encephalopathy instead of just transient memory loss so they'll come up with with severe or renal failure that's a certain stage point is i get reminded by the by the the coders that mm. the codes need to be put in there so that the hospital can get compensated. So what they were told early on, I have no doubt about it, that if you can get a positive COVID diagnosis on the books, then every day that that patient's in the hospital, we, the federal government, we, the insurance company, will reimburse you at a higher rate. Now, that's happening to this day. They're still testing people for COVID. And if they're COVID, COVID positive, regardless of the diagnosis, they're going to get a higher compensation. Now, how that that's bad enough as it sounds right that sounds pretty bad right just to test people to get paid more right then you have the secondary incentive of okay now we have these cdc protocols if you implement them 
you're going to get reimbursed. You know how, how the story goes. You know, you give someone an aspirin in the hospital and it's like 20 bucks instead of two cents. Right. But now you're giving them remdesivir, which is a relatively new antiviral, and the hospitals are going to be able to get a net profit from using the remdesivir, which is why Sarasota Memorial Hospital, when they wrote that they did not profit off of COVID protocols, then you just had to look at their spreadsheet and see that they got $9.5 million off of using COVID protocols. So $9.5 million is nothing to sneeze at. Not a little so, bit of money. You know, and then you have, and then you have, the third, there's so many things with these COVID diagnoses. The deaths, I just, I just yesterday at church, and the priest came back, said, oh, I just went to the church. We lost another one to COVID. And I wanted to stand up in the church and say, no, you didn't. It's mm. a farce. Nobody's died from COVID pneumonia in the last year and a half. Mm. Nobody. It's mm. Omicron plus, plus, plus. There's so many variants removed. As Ryan Cole says, the bad stuff is extinct right now. we got to look on the horizon for new dangerous potential dangers but no i mean the this person that he saw in the hospital died because they had a positive test for covid but they died from something else but they're going to be listed for all eternity as a covid death and that is really and not only that he was i'm sure he or she would have been isolated and all the other horrible things they've done with covid who knows if he or she got severe and and these other um certainly potentially harmful protocols it's pretty bad you mentioned Sarasota Memorial. So by now, I think most of us have seen that video of you being escorted out of that meeting, the meeting of the board of trustees, I guess, for that for that hospital. Tell us about what that meeting was about and what um, what made you decide to attend? Well, great questions. Uh, I basically didn't know a whole lot about the substance of the meeting until I got there. I mean, I was actually surprised that it was function. It functioned as a typical board meeting would. They went through their their schedule of how our hospital performed last year, because and it was to the public, being as it's a public hospital, which is accountable to their local community. Um, but the thing that was going on in the background was several medical freedom loving people down in the Sarasota area had asked me to attend. Uh, some time before, and I knew the day of the week, there's no way I could cancel patients, at least not in fairness to my patients. But I looked at my schedule, I looked at what's going on down there, and I realized, I didn't realize completely the, that, that they were going to be stacking that place with all their doctors. Hmm. I had none of, I don't, that was just a shock to me to see so many white-coated folks that just went there to say how great a hospital we have. But I did know that I would probably be the only doctor going up, going there, who took care of patients in within the walls of the hospitals, not that hospital, but four or five other hospitals in central and north central Florida. So there's nothing that dealt with the management of COVID patients that I didn't see firsthand. And so I felt it was my obligation to be there and my patients cooperated. I just moved them all to a day that I normally would have had an administrative day on a Wednesday and just worked that day. And we just got down there, uh, drove two hours plus there, and then the two hours back that afternoon or evening. But, um, in retrospect, it was a good decision. I, I mean, I, I commend you for. It. I think it was a fantastic decision. Um, so you get there, and they're talking about um, how they handled the COVID uh, pandemic, and there are family members there who lost patients or uh, lost relatives, as I understand it. They got a chance to speak about that, and then you get up and you say your piece. What exactly did you say? 
Well, I had more to say, but I, I mean, I, at the very last minute, I decided to give them some kudos for being an excellent hospital based on all the quality measures that I heard presented. See, I'm kind of a spontaneous guy. So even though I had stuff prepared for three minutes, my three minutes of whatever I was going to say, after listening to their presentation and realizing that they had incredibly high survey scores from people, I said, you, you know, I was chief of staff at a hospital in central Florida. That's a very big hospital. And I knew how hard it was to get those scores. So mm -hmm. I had to give them credit. And that took about whatever, as long as you and I are talking about it right now. So probably that was mm -hmm. one third of the time I had to speak. Right. And then um, I got into it and I thought they'd give me a little extra time. But knowing that I'd driven two hours there, I, I really expected the chairman of the board at some point to say, Dr. Littell, you know, thank you for coming here. I mean, it wouldn't have been too much to ask um, to say thank you for coming here. So there's something you could perhaps shed light on that because because I'm trying to be positive here, right? I was trying to be positive. Where I got kind of worked up was when he said one minute, very mm -hmm. perfunctorily, and I'm like, I haven't even talked about the cases that I saw where people's lives were saved within the hospital because I was able to get ivermectin to them or their spouses were able to do it, or as in the case of Mr. Mayor, who was the only one that got the actual dosing of ivermectin straight because the hospital permitted him to get it and nobody else during the course of Alpha or Delta. So it's kind of like, whoa, I they need to share They knew it worked. That. They knew it well, worked. He, he talks about it to this day. So do the nurses I took care of. And I, I mean, I can go on and on each interview. I can share a different story, and I still have more stories of, of employees of the hospitals. One male nurse I had, I just saw his wife and son the other day. He, he, his wife was expecting their second baby. She came in with the kids yesterday. She said, just thank you for saving my husband's life. Her husband was hypoxic. They were going to admit him to the hospital. He was a nurse in that hospital. And I showed up in the ER and I said, Mike, you don't want to be in this hospital. And I said, they will not let you get ivermectin here, mm. even though he works there. They didn't care. Who, they didn't care about any of that. So I sent him home. I got him as much as I could. The whole multi-drug regimen, he was rough for a couple of days because he'd waited so long to get treatment and they were not doing anything. But he turned the corner. He never got admitted. And, you know, he went from hypoxic and feeling like he was going to die to just turned the corner completely within 48 to 72 hours. So my point being, I can go on and on with these stories. So when I started to speak and share those stories, it was the end of the three minutes. I did say, I did get a little testy. I said, no, please, I need to say what I came here to say. It's been two, in two hours, and I really thought you'd give me credit for the saying nice things to you guys, but they didn't. Um, I think that set up a little bit of the flavor for me because then I went back and sat had to listen to a bunch of their folks get up and talk about how wonderful a hospital it is. We had my three babies here and you took care of my grandpa six years ago and all kinds of stuff that had nothing to do with the issue at hand, which was infuriating. Sounds, to sounds me. like fake news to me. Well, it's infuriating because all of us who showed up there and by the way, they turned away many people. My wife and I were the last two to be allowed in there. We showed up right at two o'clock. Um, they had people behind us that wanted to come in and present their cause and people had driven a long way, but they had stacked the auditorium with hundreds of their supporters, and we couldn't get hardly any seats except a few on the side, on one side. And that's, by the way, where they had the bouncer, where they had the close, uh, the uh, plain clothesman, the security guy that escorted me out. So our side was stacked with security because that's where they made us sit in the, in the uh, whatever you want to call it, the, the cheap seats. But yeah. um, you know, and so it happened. The meeting happened. It was handled poorly by the chairman of the board, who I don't, you know, I mean, and that's kind of why I'm going back. 
I'm going back on March 20th, which I haven't told anybody publicly yet, but I'm going to be there. Well, that's that's awesome to hear. So 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 their side of the story is that you weren't escorted out right after your three minutes ended. Um, 40 minutes had lapsed. And then as you were getting up to leave, you approached the dais and a board member to kind of say goodbye. And they took that as some kind of breach of security protocols. Now, um, okay, so you, you unfortunately, we live in a, in a day and a time when you can't really trust everyone's intentions. So you can't have people approaching the dais. I'm, in, I'm inclined to not dismiss that on its face. But I wonder, I really wonder, if you hadn't spent your time talking about things the hospital should have done, whether or not they would, um, you know, if you had spent that time lavishing praise on the hospital, like some of these other speakers would have, I wonder if they would have asked you to leave. I guess we'll never know, but I have my suspicions. I suspect you do as well. Oh, my Lord. Yes, yeah, I do. Well, not only that, but what I heard after the fact is that one of the board members actually signaled to the security to come get take me when I went over to the friendly board member, you know, so that that was a it was not something I think that she would have signaled had it been the chief of staff walking over and just whispering to someone saying, I'm sorry, I have an emergency. I have to leave. You know, not that he probably would have known he shouldn't do that. My thinking was I had to get on the road. And I didn't get a chance to say something. And this lady was amazing that spoke on our behalf. I just wanted to make sure she at least heard from me a word of thanks. And please call me if you need me again. And I was going to get on the road and head out in my own time, but not not in the way I needed. I was escorted out there. You know, that was a little unexpected. Um, so tell us about your, your, your going back on March. Is this going to be another board of trustees meeting? Yeah, they're doing their next scheduled meeting is March 20th, which is a Monday. And um, it's going to be preceded by a an event of our sorts, a rally, um, which will be peaceful, of course. But just to bring so people don't have, you know, I can't get shut down in three minutes necessarily. But I think there'll be other organizations there that were not able to uh, or be there for the last event. And here's how I look at it. You know, you were talking about how Florida is leading the way in a sense with medical freedom. Well, Sarasota has become, unfortunately for them, you know, the uh, the test case for the rest of the world, essentially, and certainly for the rest of this country. Um, you could say the scapegoat, I suppose, too, if you wanted to, because, you know, there are hospitals, we had right in this, in my own community, one hospital that several physicians would call, call like the, the killing place, because there was one in particular where they just were hands off. People went to the COVID units and it seemed like there was just nothing much being done. But And then you had two others where it looked like there was a lot being done. But they, 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 what they all had in common was none of them were allowing these early treatments, right? So um, point being that some hospitals, like they were boasting of their COVID success rate. We only had so many deaths and we had such a high, we had the highest COVID survival in the state of Florida. I think they made that kind of comment. Now, those numbers could be skewed because if they're testing everybody, it really depends on the denominator, right? If they're not sick patients who tested mm-hmm. positive with COVID and they're just there for a knee replacement, then that's not a legitimate. You really have to look at the Delta variant, especially how many sick COVID patients got out of, uh, out of your hospital. So uh, other than other than on a, you know, to the morgue. So mm-hmm. um, 
So really, they're the test case. And and I have to, you know, I, that's kind of what I was going to say to them the last time. I was going to say this. I, I kind of feel sorry for you guys in a way because you're the ones in the public eye. It could be any hospital in the state of Florida and many that had a worse track record than you. Maybe other many that disciplined doctors, such as the hospitals that disciplined me, and I can go into those details. Mm-hmm. They never disciplined me at Sarasota. Did they discipline other doctors? I've heard, but, you know, I'm not going to let them talk about it. But so this is the test case. Now, what I did say, and I've said multiple times, if they truly were to be the best hospital in Florida, they should be the first to admit they did wrong. That's what's going to make them truly the best, because that has been said about doctors. Oh, my gosh, since I was chief of staff and before then, they talked about how doctors are the last to admit they've made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And if a doctor would just admit they make a mistake. Now, the problem with that is you've got these creeps in Florida. Their name is Morgan and Morgan. And I have, I have no problem calling them creeps because mm-hmm. they are. The way they can successfully intimidate doctors is beyond the pale in hospitals. So these lawyers... When I had a, a run in, this is public information now, I had a patient who was cured of his cancer, but they still went to Morgan Morgan and were able to get a settlement because they told me, you know, if there's if you say any one thing was ro- done wrong, even though it could be the smallest thing, in our case, it was transitioning from, to rec- one, from com- paper records to computer records. And I had one employee not put something in there that actually would have helped me out a lot more. And they, oh, OK, you did something wrong. You can't admit it. And the lawyer told me on my side, he said, Dr. Patel, you can never admit wrongdoing ever when it comes to legal issues. So if you're not going to admit wrongdoing when it comes to a potential legal matter, then a hospital is never going to admit wrongdoing unless they know they're protected. And that's why Governor DeSantis has this legislation. He's allowing to stay in effect, protecting hospitals from being sued over the treatment of COVID patients. And that's another issue I'd love to bring up with them. I don't want them any money, any more money going to Morgan and Morgan or any other of these lawyers who just, you know, with their slimy tactics. No, no, we don't. They don't need the money. We just need to get to a point where we can expose what happened. There can be closure, which is what all these families want. They just want closure. Mm-hmm. They want the hospital to say. And so if there's some way to not, you know, enrich the people who, by the way, politically speaking, end up supporting the same organizations that are that have started this in the first place, the government agencies, especially certain ones, you know, so it's kind of a vicious circle. You don't know where to go. So I'm just saying when I go down there, I would love to see um, something happening that shows not just lip service. I'm sorry you lost your loved one, which is what the chairman of board was doing. I'm sorry for your loss. We'd like, can we speak after the meeting? I, I would like to help. I mean, that's kind of okay, That's, but it's not what's needed. We want to have them recognize that people should have gotten these treatments, and we want to ensure that this never happens again, that people are not denied life-saving treatments, and they're not getting given harmful courses of action, and they're not isolated from their loved ones in the process, which the governor did sign some legislation, no patient left alone, which at least theoretically would prevent that from happening. Harmful courses of action. Um, speaking of which, tell us about the book. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, The Hidden Truth, Deception in Women's in Women's Healthcare. Yes. Oh, good. Thank you. You're kind to bring it up. Yeah. Yeah. This is it right here. I keep it in my room. And it's actually nice to keep it in the exam rooms because people start losing things while they're waiting for me. But um, that book really was a 20-year um, 
journey. It's sort of a, I think it's somewhat miraculous. I was able to get it written despite being in solo practice, but it was a lot of Saturday mornings. It was every, every summer vacation in Montana with my kids when they were little. I just bought a big briefcase of papers. I laid it out on my father-in-law's table. And when they were sleeping, I would just sit and work on it. And the book is essentially um, a book about empowering women with information for themselves, for their children and fathers and husbands as well. Because what's happened in the healthcare field is that women have become essentially very passive. And this is really strange because I thought we lived in a time where women are, you know, it's the feminist movement or whatever, they feel empowered. But when you're doing things like sliding up these silastic rods that were known as Eshore into the fallopian tubes of women right after they have their babies, or even tying their tubes for that matter, without getting any informed consent, in the case of the Eshore, which was on the market over 10 years, there were thousands of women who underwent unnecessary hysterectomies and other procedures because these rods would perforate the fallopian tubes and cause chronic pelvic pain. And yet the FDA didn't take it off the market. Now, this is why I always say, and I have many examples of this. That's just the first one that comes to mind. But when the FDA goes through this rigorous process of approving a drug, you know, supposedly rigorous process, right. you know, right? And then they put it out there and they're seeing this happen. You know, who got on the bandwagon and tried to, in a good way, was Erin Brockovich. She, she, she had women, a friend of hers, who had this happen, and she started going after the FDA. So what is with the FDA's response, as I discussed in the book, was to send out, or actually, no, it was right after my book was written, which is interesting timing. I, there was an article, you can see it on my website, about this East Shore that I had written. And then the FDA came out with an advisory to all the obstetricians in America to give women a like 20-page pamphlet to read about the dangers of East Shore before they put it in. That was about six months, and then six months later, the FDA finally took it off the market, only after these women were injured. So I, I mean, writing this book, I talk about the Gardasil vaccine in detail, how Merck and the CDC were complicit, how state governments were complicit, how the federal government was complicit in rolling out a vaccine and deceiving not only mothers and fathers, but physicians into believing a false narrative which is that every 10 and 11 year old boy and girl will acquire this sexually transmitted disease in their lifetime. Mm. And that once you get it, you have it for life. Both mm. of those are not only lies, but they're horrendously wrong. <laughs> there's, 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 to say any of that is so off the charts wrong. Virtually HPV is 100% treatable, 100% preventable without the need for the vaccine. So um, I, I had to bring that to light and then I have other stuff in there eventually in that book talking about even Bill Gates and the assault on fertility. And um, so I always try to get people to get it. I kept it really cheap. Um, uh, you know, if you go to my website and also even the audio book is really, oh, I, I got to get an audio book, someone said, but I have a digital version of it. But no, I'm, I'm happy that book came out before uh, COVID because it shows that my I was already, um, I've been very skeptical of medicine, honestly, Mike since I got into medicine, I've been very skeptical. And now this is just, <laughs> all this comes to light. Well, I mean, you know what, Doc, I, I, I want to thank you for taking the time today. I know you're a very busy guy and you're the kind of doctor, I think when people open up, you know, a dictionary and they search for the word doctor, I think someone like you is, um, is a person that, that comes up and sadly, it, it, we need more of you. We need more of you. So I want to thank you for fighting the good fight. Well, it's been a pleasure, Mike. Uh, really 
getting to know you even through this format. I hope we get a chance to visit again and uh, uh, pray for me. And I appreciate the prayers of my patients and any support. Uh, and not just for me, but for the medical students who I meet day in and day out who are struggling because they're being persecuted for trying to do the right thing. So pray for the future of medicine, the future of our country. God bless you. Thanks. Thank you, Dr.